optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it in a broken time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. Athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello ladies and germs, princesses and bridge trolls, this is Tim Ferriss and welcome to another episode of the Tim Ferriss Show where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, to find out what makes them tick, what makes them good and to unearth the specific tactics, habits, etc. that you can use. And this episode was so much fun for me and I don't want you to take it at face value because we get into so much in terms of daily routine, visualizing things like weakness and anger to get rid of them, multiple steps for mindfulness and meditation, training the mind, hiring. It covers so much ground, so I don't want you to be thrown off by the fact that it starts in the cooking world and the food world. It applies to so much more. The guest is, and I'm gonna butcher a lot of French in this episode, so get used to it, Eric Repair. Uh, R-I-P-E-R-T, who's recognized as one of the best chefs in the world, and you'll know why in a second. So in 1995, at 29 years old, he earned a four-star rating from the New York Times. 20 years later, and for the fifth consecutive time, Le Bernardin, uh, which is in New York City, where Eric is the chef and co-owner, 
once again earned the New York Times highest rating of four stars, becoming the only restaurant to maintain this superior status for such a marathon length of time. In 1998, the James Beard Foundation named him top chef in New York City. Think about that for a minute. Out of thousands of restaurants and probably the same number of chefs. Uh, And in 2003, Outstanding Chef of the Year. And it goes on and on. He's had successful TV shows, Avec Eric. He has hosted the show On the Table on YouTube, which debuted in July 2012 and has appeared in media worldwide. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, 32 Yokes, From My Mother's Table to Working the Line, Avec Eric, and several others. Now, one thing I'll point out, so Eric... Also, uh, my first contact with him was through putting together my brand new book, which is Tribe of Mentors. And if you liked Tools of Titans, you're going to love Tribe of Mentors. And uh, it's similar in format, but very different in the sense that 90 plus percent of the people in the book never appeared on the podcast. And uh, you can learn more about Tribe of Mentors on all of your favorite booksellers, websites, BNN, Amazon, Apple iBooks, and so on. Uh, and if you want to go to, for instance, tim.blog forward slash tribe, you can learn more about it. All right. So that is that. And really listen to this episode. Uh, we talk about hiring and restaurants for the first maybe 30 minutes, which is still worth listening to. And then we go really, really deep on a lot of specifics that can apply to every thing in just about every one. So long intro, but trust me, it's worth it. And uh, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Eric Repair. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy. I have been looking forward to connecting with you for some time. I remember first coming across your smile on, I believe it was No Reservations, but it might have been Parts Unknown, where you took Anthony Bourdain back on the line to see if he had any of his, any of his endurance and skills left. <laughs> yeah, it was not much left, actually. <laughs> it's why I was smiling and laughing so much. Because his idea was to torture me, to take me and, and put me on the line and see myself going down. Right, he thought because I was the chef of Le Bernardin, I forgot about how to cook on the line. And uh, when he asked me, I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm coming, no problem." But you have to be on the line yourself. And he went down so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great episode, and it caught me at a really good time because I was doing research for a book I wrote called The Four Hour Chef, and I remember. At the time, just before seeing that, I went into it was Riverside Restaurant to uh, actually attempt to do some prep work. <laughs> My knife skills are not fantastic, but they're, they, were, they were improving. And I remember watching people on the line, and the people who were really good seemed like they had eight arms. I mean, they seemed like they were an, an octopus or something along those lines. And I was, I was curious, just as a starting point, I've read, for instance, that you really focus on mentality when you're hiring people and that there are certain things you can teach, but mentality is very important. What makes, for instance, a good line cook or uh, what types of people do you look for? Because I noticed when I was looking at, say, the forearms of some of these line cooks, I mean, it looked like they've been crawling through barbed wire and charcoal. (laughs) Uh, they're very, very tough and, uh, they seem to really enjoy it almost like professional athletes. Also the action of the whole thing. But, uh, what is, what is a key mentality 
when you're looking for someone who's going to be good at something like that? They all become good at one point. And, and nobody's born with knife skills. Nobody knows at three years old how to make a sauce and so on. This is craft, this details of craftsmanship. And I'm not worried about the fact that we will be able to teach uh, the person uh, the, the, the details of craftsmanship. So I'm always thinking about the mentality of the person, about if they are potentially a good team player. If they are not a good team player, if they cannot adapt and, and, and be part of a team, I, I, have, I don't like that. And I will probably not hire them because it doesn't matter if they can multitask and they are brilliant at what they do. At one point, they will struggle during the night or during the lunch. Uh, and they need to help um, also as well uh, the, the the other part of the team that struggle. So if they are very individualistic and they have a temper and they have an ego, um, the chances the chances are they're not coming to Le Bernardin. Uh, they have to be humble. Uh, they have to be disciplined and clean. And this is the obvious. Uh, being being humble is very important because it allows you to keep yourself curious and motivate it. If your ego is in a way, it makes you blind and you're not inclined to learn because you already know or, or you don't want to show your weakness. Uh, so th those kind of things, details are, are what I'm looking in, into someone uh, who comes to Le Bernardin. And there's a lot, a lot of other things. I mean, obviously, they have to be very clean. Uh, they have to be honest. I mean, those are, of course, like uh, the ABC of hiring someone. But uh, again, being so, being a team player, it's, in my opinion, one of the most important um, thing for for someone to become a good line cook. I'm not saying a chef. I make a difference in between a line cook and a chef. Um, a chef is a manager, and it's it's someone who has the capability of driving a team to success and who creates hopefully uh, his own recipes and and has many other responsibilities in the kitchen. The line cook is basically um, the core of a chef. It's, it's without being a great line cook, without mastering all the aspects or a lot of the aspect, aspects of what's happening in the kitchen, you cannot become a good manager, you cannot become a chef. And when you're trying to identify someone who is a good team player, do you do that by asking certain questions? Do you do it by throwing them into a shift and test driving them and seeing how they respond to certain situations? How do you figure out who is going to be a good team player? Because I would imagine you don't want to test it when a lot is on the line, when you have uh, yes. know, an entirely full restaurant, that's not the time to experiment with it. So how do you determine if they're a team player or not? So first of all, um, we look at the resumes when they are sent to us, or the cooks are um, sent by a culinary school or by another chef. Uh, they have a lot of good recommendations. And what we do, we invite them to come in our kitchen on a Saturday night because it's a busy night and it's also the end of the week and, and we like to have them 
Um, and we don't have too many at the same time, but two or three uh, potential uh, hires uh, in our kitchen. And, and we said to them, look, we give you a menu and we're going to put you in a kitchen in some different spots and you lo- you're going to observe. And then at the end of the night, we will have a little talk with you because what we really want is for you to like what you see and want to be part of that team that's working tonight. And therefore, it's very light on them. They, they don't have any pressure. They don't have um, anything to do but to observe. At the same time, what they don't realize is that we are watching them as well. For instance, um, if I see someone two hours into, into the service putting his, his hands in a pocket and starting to lean against the wall and starting to yawn, uh, it's not a good sign. If I see someone starting to bother the cooks by asking hundreds of questions when it's the really, really difficult time of the night and, and the cooks need to be concentrated, I know that person is not is not understanding uh, what's happening. Uh, it's, so it's a lot of little details like that. And then at, at the end of the service, we sit down with them and we ask them what they think. And we and, and then if they have a positive answer and they say, well, look, I, I like your kitchen. I want to be with you. Uh, then we, we go more into details, uh, technical details of, of what we expect from them. And we make them come back again and we put them in a station with someone and they don't have any responsibilities, but they feel a little bit of the pressure. And uh, it's a very slow process before we hire them. Do you fire quickly? And we're not going to stay on hiring and firing the whole time, don't <laughs> worry. But do you, do you hire really slowly and fire quickly or do you give people many different opportunities if they make mistakes? No, we don't, we don't fire easily. It's very rare that we fire someone it's very rare that someone also leaves almost immediately after being hired um, because of the process. Because we are slow at hiring, they understand better who we are and they understand better if we are good for them. And therefore, we don't have to deal with those painful consequences that are having someone leaving or have to um, let someone go. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Well, actually, completely. But the details, the little details, I love the allowing to observe, but observing them simultaneously. So I'd love to talk about a very different type of detail. And this might be outdated, but I read about your office at one point. <laughs> and this, is, this, this, was in, this was a piece from 2005, so it may not be accurate. But could you describe what your office looks like or what makes your office different perhaps than what people might think of as a normal office and uh, um, it's a leading question so i can i can certainly yes. re- read what i have but uh, i'd love for you to describe your office if you could well my office looks like um, like a monastery like a buddhist monastery with <laughs> buddha statues everywhere um, tankas, pictures of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, p- pictures of Buddhas, uh, uh, mantras, candles, a lot of them, uh, probably way too many. And uh, on my, it's one table that I share with my with Cathy, uh, who's my right hand, and we basically face each other. And 
Then we have a, a, another lady in office, Chelsea, who's working with us uh, uh, for different aspects of, of the duties. But I always ask them permission, and I, if I can bring an, a, another painting or another Tanka or Buddha, and I ask them if they're comfortable with that. If not, I would uh, uh, remove them because I don't want to impose uh, on them. And uh, it's interesting because they laugh all the time, but when I remove one Buddha, they complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I remove, I remove Buddhas because I'm not being a Buddhist. You're not supposed to be attached. And obviously it's a form of attachment. And therefore I try to um, give Buddhas to my friends who, who, who accept a Buddha, who are happy to receive a Buddha from me. Uh, if not, I move them to, to my house Although I think we are maxed out at the house. And uh, actually, it's, uh, my, my wife had a funny line the other day. She said, what do you think about me bringing, because she's Catholic, bringing some Christ uh, on the cross and put, putting them all over the walls? And I, I said, yeah, you're right. Maybe I should move some Buddhas out of the house as well. <laughs> <laughs> and... The well, two two questions. You mentioned you mentioned a word, and I apologize, I, I couldn't make it out. Tanka is that the uh, word that you used? Tankas are religious paintings that are rolled to travel, and then you put them you you put them against the wall, and it's basically uh, usually a painting of a deity or a Buddha that has the the role to help you in meditation or to inspire you, it, it's not just for decoration. And do you still have handwritten mantras or mantras around the office or elsewhere in your life? Well, so I, at home, what I have done to, to avoid the discussion of putting too many Buddhas everywhere, uh, I have a meditation room that is... Uh, basically my world and and nobody's telling me um, what to put in it or not or, or not put it in, inside the room uh, so I, I manage that pretty well uh, and then again the office is uh, it's a work in progress what are some of the handwritten mantras that you ah. that you have around or any any that are particularly important to you that you have that you tend to revisit. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know where to begin. But I'm I'm extremely curious because I have quotes that I put around my house. For instance, one on the refrigerator, one on the coffee table because I think they're important for me to revisit. And I'm ve I'm very fascinated by this this handwritten mantra idea. Well, the mantras that I have are either way in Tibetan or Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. But my f and and I'm not sure I understand fully. The, the, the full extent of the power of the mantra, but probably uh, the most powerful that I have on the wall is a mantra that explains the theory of emptiness in, in Buddhism, which is basically that nothing, nothing in, in life or in this world, which is called samsara, has an intrinsic reality, which means is independent from anything else. In, in Buddhism, we believe that everything is a matter of cause and consequences, and everything is interrelated. Um, 
So that mantra is basically reminding and make and proving the point that nothing exists by itself and we are all one. If it makes sense, it does. <laughs> it, no, it, it makes more sense. Probably requires a little bit of wine and a longer conversation, but <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it no, no, no. It does make a lot of sense to me. I'd love to rewind the clock a little bit, and we're definitely going to come back to meditation. Sure, certainly at, at one point. But from from my understanding, perhaps it was about two decades ago. You were a very demanding chef. And uh, I think you referred to yourself as a, as a as a dictator or a borderline a borderline violent dictator. <laughs> yes, and, 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 and I agree, I was. And uh, you were losing employees. Could you tell us about that period of time? Because that's the last thing I would have imagined, given my exposure to you on video, to given you in writing. Yet I know that certainly not very long ago that was extremely typical in kitchens but can you tell us about that period of time and absolutely what changes you made or what realizations you had yes of course i was trained in europe at a very young age in, in kitchens where the way to educate a cook was through abuse and humiliation and the belief was we're gonna break. We're gonna break this person. We're gonna, and then we're gonna rebuild potentially a champion. And it, so it was allowed in the kitchen to uh, be, beat the cooks, like kick them in the butt, or beat them in a, in the shoulders, or even have you know like punching the cooks and so on. In many kitchens, it was allowed, and it was common practice. It was certainly. Um, more than a common practice, it was everywhere and totally accepted to have a chef being screaming, insulting uh, the cooks and having tantrum in the kitchen and throwing pans in the garbage and plates on the floor. And, and uh, it, it was seen as a, as a sign of uh, power. And I learned later on in life that it's actually... It's embarrassing. It's, it's a huge sign of weakness. But it was it was the way many kitchens were training their cooks uh, in Europe. And it was actually a reflection of the education in, in, in the society. It was totally accepted in the 1970s when I was five years old to have the teacher in school spanking or, or smacking uh, or, or pulling the ears of a student. It was totally acceptable for parents to certainly do the same and, and therefore ultimately uh, in a work environment we will see those kind of abuse then when i came to the u.s i was convinced that it was the right way to maintain a kitchen maintain discipline to create some strong people uh, a little bit almost like uh, you will do with the militaries during the time of war when you have to be uh, uh, training them uh, to to be ready to die, I guess, um, or to fight until the, the, the last minute. Uh, so that was my mentality. And when I became uh, the chef of Le Bernardin, or even sous-chef, when I was sous-chef in Washington, D.C. At, at the Watergate Hotel, 
I had those terrible tantrums in the kitchen uh, because the quality wouldn't be there, because the cooks were not behaving the way I wanted. And I was a terror. And the waiters were scared of me and the cooks were scared of me. And I was losing uh, the, the, the staff. Uh, they were going to work somewhere else. And I, have, I remember not understanding why they were leaving. I, I thought I was doing a good job trying to educate them. But ultimately, I had to one day sit down at home and, and started to reflect on, on my life uh, as a professional and on my life in general. And I realized that I was miserable. I was not happy at all. And I realized that actually your brain cannot mix happiness and anger at the same time. And, and I, I can tell you, anyone can try to be happy and, and angry. It, 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 the, the brain doesn't process that. Therefore, I decided almost overnight to change uh, the way I was managing the kitchen, the way I was conducting my life. And since then, it has been a work in progress and I'm getting better and better. And I make sure that our kitchen is uh, an environment where people are, are happy to come and are motivated and excited uh, to learn uh, what is supposed to learn. And uh, uh, the biggest job that I have, and, and, and that was at the time, is to convince my sous chefs that yesterday we were wrong and we have to change. Uh, the sous chefs were like, what's happening to you? you you completely change. And it has been um, a long journey for me to convince the sous chef that uh, the way to um, educate people and to motivate people, it's uh, being inspirational, being kind, being strong in keeping a, a certain discipline in the kitchen without promoting abuse. Was there a particular moment that triggered that change in you? Because I imagine, for instance, you've you not all of the employees left at the same time. There are probably different events, different happenings. Was there a particular conversation or a particular book or a particular employee who left that was just the straw that broke the camel's back when you realized that something had to change? No. Do you know what happened? It was very interesting because I knew I was uh, miserable and... I will close my eyes, mostly at home, uh, after work, and I will try to envision something nice, something that will make me smile or something that will make me happy. So I will close my eyes and I will say, choose something simple. Envision a field of flowers or envision a flower, for instance. And I was not capable to imagine a simple flower. Wow. It was all darkness. And that freaked me out. That because, means, be, because you were so angry? Because, you had... because I was in a darkness. Right. And that is what triggered the change in me. It was not necessarily an employee that was fired a certain way. Uh, it, was, it was that moment, uh, sitting down or laying down, I don't remember, but saying, oh my God, I am incapable of visualizing anything beautiful. And therefore... I must be uh, in total darkness. Wow. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Not anymore. 
<laughs> not anymore. Yeah, now you now you seem like you're able to. Uh, what what did you say or do to convince your uh, I, I suppose sort of second, third in command, the sous chefs, that it was necessary and to get them to go along with it? What? Uh, how did you convince them? Because I can imagine that overnight regime change, you know, they're wondering if you somehow snuck off to Burning Man for a night or something and aren't sure what happened. <laughs> how did you get them to buy in? What did you say to them? Yes, and I still and I still have to do that because some of them have a temper and, and some sous chefs uh, are, are joining our team and they come from other teams that are different and, and come from a different environment that is much more abusive than at Le Bernardin. So it's a constant uh, communication with them I basically say, look, for practical reasons, forget forget the spiritual reason, forget being nice for the act of being nice. But for practical reason, if you scare the cook and you make him shake and he loses cool and he cannot focus, that cook will not be productive the way we need him to be productive. And ultimately, the product that will go to the dining room to the client will not be as nice. So on that aspect, it's easy to understand that we want the cooks not to be scared. And they have to be precise and they have to be um, pushed, of course, because it's, it's, it's a timing issue, but they have to be pushed in a nice way so they feel part of the team. Now, the other day I had a discussion with a um, couple of sous chefs and, and I said, I was trying to find a secular message for them that will resonate to them in, in, in their, and that would, they will mm, understand easily. So, because I always try to not bring my Buddhist philosophy uh, into the kitchen, except through secular ways. So I said to them, I said, why don't you treat people the way you want to be treated? And I think it's actually in the Bible somewhere. But I, I, I told them that. I said, look, you like when I talk to you nicely. You like when I am taking the time and patient with you. And, and you like interacting with me uh, and knowing that I'm a, a gentle soul. And you don't like if I raise my voice, which is very rare. And you don't like if you see my face looking frustrated. So if you don't like that, why do you think someone else is going to like what you do? So please treat others the way you want to be pleased, the, the way you want to be treated. And that really um, had a good impact. They understood that really well. And it was a, a good meeting uh, that day. And, uh, and I have to say, I mean, I believe 90% of the time or 99% of the time our kitchen is a very... Um, good environment to blossom but of course we have our moments of course uh sometimes the challenge uh is so strong that uh someone loses it especially in, in, in a position of command uh, including myself and and in that case I, I have also an antidote for that it's okay if we lose it and it's happening and the kitchen stops and the cooks are terrorized or, or frustrated. What we have to do is we have to wait a few minutes and or until the end of the service and then 
we have to go on the front of the entire staff and genuinely apologize for being angry and expressing it by potentially screaming or any way of showing anger. And I say, if we do that, uh, the cooks will, will forgive us, I believe, and it will also, for us, be a good lesson because it's never pleasant to go on the front of a team and apologize for a mistake. And it's happening. Uh, now I see like some sous chefs sometimes they, they lose their temper and uh, uh, minutes later they go and say, look, I am, I'm sorry, I, I apologize for, for my behavior and uh, let's, let's finish the night uh, in a better way. And even myself, this week I remember I was frustrated with uh, the sommelier who was spending too much time at the table explaining the wine and the food getting cold. And I called him and, and I had a couple of like uh, rough words with him. And immediately I realized and I said, you know, look, I'm totally sorry, but please do not do that because our food is getting cold. I apologize for, for raising my voice. And he laughed and he said, take it easy, it's all good. I'm a big boy. But still, you know, I, I, I made the effort to do that. And uh, when you are trying to strike a balance between, say, kindness and uh, the, go- the golden rule that you mentioned, treat others as you would have them treat you, and extremely high quality, as you've given the examples, of course, it doesn't mean that you're just running around giving everybody hugs all night. You, you no. certainly give feedback. What are, what are some of the approaches or learnings that you've had in striking that balance? Because when I'm, as I'm listening to you talk about your history with sort of being brought up in a very tough environment, and I was, I was uh, also coached in sports very often in ways that were similar, extremely, extremely similar, uh, particularly during my time in Japan where they would actually, cut, there's a kendo sword, and in some of the gyms I went to, they would cut off the top of the kendo sword so that it splayed out uh, almost. And then they would hit athletes who were training. If they did something incorrectly, cut their ears and it would cause all sorts of... I mean, the Japanese are very intense that way, <laughs> as well as their, some of their schools of, of Zen meditation are also in, involve a lot of physical abuse. But the, the point being that I had a lot of trouble... Uh, about uh, maybe five years ago, a little bit earlier, with realizing how unproductive the anger was that I had adopted as a way of interacting with people when I was in a bad place, and uh, so I've I've struggled with, to be honest, getting a, getting better at managing people, and I think I've improved a lot in the last few years. But how have you? I know that's a lot of context, but are there certain things that you've found helpful for finding that line of really high quality, but still returning to a place of kindness? Yes, I, I think it's important to find tools to, um, to fight anger. Now, anger doesn't help to create quality. Quality has nothing to do... or. Uh, or standards of quality at Le Bernardin have nothing to do with anger. Um, if someone does a mistake and he doesn't realize it, or even if he realizes he made a mistake, we basically bring the person to the to the past, which is the table where we we um, check the food, and 
we pinpoint what's wrong about it and we say, look, you made a mistake right here and right here. Go do it again. Um, and we say that really like in a, in a kind way without saying, please go take your time and do it again. We, say, we just say, go do it again, but in a nice way. And we do that all night long. So it's not something exceptional about it. Uh, and, and the cooks have the habit of saying yes and taking the, the, the plate that has a mistake on and taking and bringing it back again uh, the way we want it. So that's, that's what's happening. But it's important to tame anger uh, with the right tools. So first of all, it, I think it's important to analyze what anger does to someone. Like for myself, I, I realized that anger, it's something that, it's a very strong force that comes from the guts almost and comes up. It's the way I, I feel it in, in, in processing anger. And that strong, very strong force uh, has a tremendous power, of course, but that that force is blind. It, it's, it's not a rational way. It doesn't make you rational. It, it makes you completely unaware of the consequences of what that force makes you do. So, for instance, you may very well uh, insult someone. Like you mentioned in Japan, they beat people in, in some, uh, with some athletes or something like that. Uh, if it comes from anger, it's not. It's impossible to control, and and you don't. The consequences are basically negative, obviously. Uh, and then when when you come down, and when the anger is gone, suddenly you like, wow, wh why? What did I do? My God, it was not necessary. So analyzing that, or making that exercise of contemplation towards someone who has anger or toward your, yourself, it's important. And then I use the tool of meditation for anger um, very often. And for instance, a very easy med meditation for anyone uh, at home is to visualize anger as a, as a dark cloud coming out of yourself and imagining a laser coming out of your forehead and destroying the dark cloud. And if you do that every day, thinking that the anger is a dark cloud, I can guarantee you that one day the anger is coming and you have the almost like this Pavlov reflex of saying, oh my God, it's the dark cloud. And instead of letting anger go and, and, and blind you, you destroy that anger. And would you suggest them doing this visualization, this meditation, say in the morning, or is it a, is it a tool that they use whenever they start to sense the physical symptoms of anger, or both? Uh, well, it's both because you, I, I believe that um, when you do meditation, it's better to do it on the morning because your mind is clear usually or clearer. Uh, you don't have all the uh, all the distraction of the day, uh, all the actions that you have done that will potentially, potentially distract you during your meditation. 
Uh, morning meditations are, in my opinion, much more um, produ pro productive. And and then when you, like I mentioned before, when you get angry after many meditations on on that dark cloud, again you remember, and it's when you apply it. What do, what does your current meditation practice look like? And we can definitely get into the details on, on this podcast. It's just been fascinating in the last few years to see that of all of the people I interview who operate at a high level in any field, I would say more than 85% have some type of mindfulness practice or meditation practice. And it takes many, many different forms, but I'd, sure. I'd love to hear specifically, uh, what your meditation practice looks like, what time you do it in the morning. If you could just walk us through, yes. in the case of a morning meditation, what is what do the first sort of 60 minutes or an hour of your day look like? Uh, those are the same, I guess. 60 minutes or 90 minutes of the day <laughs> look like for you. I, I like to have my day. It, it's, a very, it, it's very repetitive. It's like um, a pattern. I follow a pattern. So I wake up. And I force myself, because I always forget, to be grateful to be alive. Um, and then... What time do you typically wake up? 6 o'clock, 6.30, 7 o'clock. If I... Rarely 8 o'clock. Uh, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, for me, it's pretty early. Um, after that, I look at my phone. I quickly look at the news on the phone and messages and, and things like that, but it doesn't take too much. After that, I go make my coffee. Then I go to my meditation room and I do some rituals, uh, Buddhist rituals. I make some offerings. I read a little bit. I, I um, say some mantras and then I start my meditation. And when I start the meditation, I, don't even sit in a lotus position because I find it uh, a distraction for me because my knees hurt and my back hurt uh, and I'm not that flexible. So therefore, I sit, I sit straight but comfort comfortable and I start to look at the room and, and I look at the details of the room and then I close my eyes and I do what we call shamatha. Shamatha meditation is basically uh, being in the present and controlling your mind and not letting the mind think about the past or think about the future or start to be judgmental. We call that um, avoiding a monkey mind. Monkey mind is when you, you're not in control of your mind, but your mind is in control of yourself. Uh, that exercise can be done uh, by focusing on, on the way you inspire and excel. Many people do that. For myself, uh, it's a little bit different. When I inhale, I feel the energy coming from the first chakra, which is, first chakra is basically the middle of your butt. <laughs> And, and uh, the energy going up to the uh, seven chakra, which is on top of the head, right? Uh, and then when I, I exhale, the energy goes down. 
it looks like it's almost like a tube in my back that um, uh, carry the energy up and carry the energy down. So I do that for a few minutes. And I don't count the minutes because I don't want to be distracted by, oh my God, how many minutes? Am I going to do 10 minutes? Or am I going to to do only five minutes today? Or what, what am I going to do? So I, I don't put pressure on myself. What is important is not the quantity in terms of timing, it's the quality. Then when I feel that I am really in the present and in control of my mind, I decide, we, I decide which meditation I'm going to do. Very often they are um, meditations that are um, linked to Buddhism, but sometimes it can be a meditation that is universal and secular, like for instance, visualizing a weakness and and finding a way to destroy that weakness. So it can be anger, it can be jealousy, it can be attachment, it can be uh, desire, anything. But I always end up by doing the 12-link um, meditation, which is typically a Buddhist uh, meditation from uh, the Vajrayana school, which is Buddh- uh, Tibetan Buddhism. 12 link L I N K. Uh-huh. Got it. And how and uh I know you're not counting the minutes but typically how long do you do that for? It probably takes about all to uh, in between shamatha and vipassana which is a guided meditation and shamatha being single point meditation it's when you basically uh control your brain and then it's when you with your brain concentrate on different subjects. In between both meditations, it must be about 25 minutes, half hour maximum, not more than that. Then I read again. And then sometimes I meditate again if I have time, but that's basically the about two hours of my time on the morning is in between doing the ritual that I, uh, that I just explained to you. I have quite a few questions about this because I love the details and my listeners love the details. And I'm also about to do my first silent retreat for 10 days. So I'm thinking oh, a lot fantastic. about, wow. so I'm, thi- I'm thinking a lot about this. <laughs> I think yeah. it's, I think it's part of the medicine I need. <laughs> we all, we all, we all need something. I think this is part of what I need. And, uh, I'm going to get to, to the meditation in, in, in detail, but just for people who may not have ever experienced something like this or attempted anything like this, what are some of the benefits that you see from this? Or perhaps a different way to answer it would be, what were you like before this type of practice? And how are you different now? Meditation ultimately helps you to train your mind how to concentrate in a better way helps you to control, like I mentioned before, your mind. If not, the mind is something that is very free and very uh, lack discipline. And so it's, it's, it's the only, only way for you to be in control of yourself. And it's the best way for yourself to concentrate and to if you are studying some philosophical subjects, to go to the roots of the subjects. That's what meditation does. It also um, 
I believe, uh, help you to be uh, calmer. It's, it's calmer an English word? I don't think cal- so. Calm. To be oh, calm. calmer. Calmer, cal- yes. Yeah, sorry, calmer. Okay. <laughs> uh, to be, yeah, to be m- much more serene, let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't happen overnight. And meditation very often on the beginning, it's frustrating and it's uh, it's not pleasureful. It's a challenge. But then after a lot of practice, it becomes a necessity. It becomes kind of a refuge for yourself. Uh, and it's it's a lot of pleasure coming out of it. I, I'm going to... I really appreciate that. And I'm going to come back to uh, also for people who are listening and are just like, oh my God, woo woo, meditation, Buddhism, like save me. Because I know a lot of type A personalities do that, which is what I did not too, too long ago. I remember I was listening to someone being interviewed on stage who used to have a lot of anger issues and they seem to have resolved a lot of them through meditation. And somebody asked them how long they meditate. And they said, well, usually it's about 30 minutes. And they said, oh, I could never sit still for 30 minutes. And they said, well, if you, if you can't meditate for 30 minutes, you need three hours. <laughs> and <laughs> generally, yeah. the harder it is for you, the more you need it. Uh, in the, but going back to the beginning of your day, I'd, I'd love to, and hopefully this is, isn't irritating for you, but just to go through each of these and ask a few questions. So the, the grateful to be alive, is that something you say to yourself? Is that a feeling? Is it just listening to the world around you? What exactly do you do when you wake up and remind yourself of that? So I wake up and when the, when my mind wakes up, it's not like, like I am confused. I know where I am. I am in my bed. <laughs> uh, uh, I am aware of that. I have this sense of awareness but I try to have my first thoughts dedicated to the fact that I am alive and I'm lucky to be alive because it gives me many possibilities to be a better person, to have uh, an impact on other people, to um, uh, also have a good day uh, on the front of me and so on. So it's something that um, I'm doing right away. And it's not like I'm thinking about it for 10 minutes. It's a very quick uh, thought. It's a few seconds thinking about it and say, wow, I'm lucky. Thank you. Um, I'm appreciating the fact that I'm waking up today and I am alive. Mm -hmm. So the next thing you do, uh, I was actually fascinated that you drink coffee before you meditate. Uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I've just actually never uh, come across it with an experienced meditator yet. I'm sure that you're not the only one. What type, just because I have to ask, since you have so much <laughs> culinary <laughs> expertise, what is your go-to coffee? How do you? What type of coffee, how do you make it? So first of all, it's decaf coffee. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it's no caffeine involved. And that helps me, I guess, a lot for my meditation. And uh, I'm not in charge of buying the coffee. It's my wife who, who goes to the store and and um, buys quality coffee from different countries. But she she knows my taste after so many years, and uh, I, I don't know where it's coming from. But 
always tastes the same. So I, I cannot I cannot tell you the origin <laughs> of the coffee. <laughs> Do you use a a machine? Do you use a Chemex? Do you have any particular? I know this is getting nerdy, but uh, I'm wondering if it's like super simple. I actually know some some really really good chefs who love instant coffee, and then I know some who will do a 10 minute pour over and hand grind the beans and do all of that. So where, where are you in that spectrum? The, the, the beans are hand grind, grind, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, I'm using a Mr. Coffee, uh, machine. Got it. Okay, cool. <laughs> Actually, you know, the coffee comes very hot and, uh, I don't like hot coffee, but it gives me the time to sit down and let my coffee, get slightly uh, cooler and it's a way for me also to like um, start my day in a very quiet simple uh, way and I I wait a few minutes for the coffee to to be a bit warmer and then uh, then and then I it takes me about at least 15 minutes to drink my cup of coffee actually it's a mug uh, but it takes me about 15 minutes. And really, the coffee for me becomes very pleasurable in terms of temperature in the last five minutes of the process. I like that. I like that you it's you deliberately have coffee that's too hot because you can't rush. Exactly. <laughs> or you'll, you'll hurt yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you then go into your meditation room. You make some offerings. Yes. Uh, which which uh, maybe we can we can do in a part two podcast because I, I, I want to <laughs> talk about the reading. What what do you read? Because it, it, you, you do the offering, you read, then you have mantras, then meditation, and then you also read yes. as a bookend at the end of the session. What are you reading or what do you like to read? I mostly read... Uh, Buddhist texts or books from uh, masters or uh, ancient masters and from modern uh, teachers and mostly uh, teachings from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. That's what I read. Are there any particular chapters or books that you would recommend to someone if they wanted to start somewhere? Yeah, yeah, of course, you have always like Buddhism for dummies, but I don't <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I think studying the Four Noble Truths uh, with someone like the Dalai Lama, it's a good idea because it's a very... Mm, interesting and simple approach to Buddhism is the realization that so the Four Noble Truths basically are uh, was the first teaching of Buddha after he got enlightened and is the realization that in life at one point or another life is made of suffering and that suffering so that's the first truth the second truth is that suffering as an origin. So basically, let's suppose you have a big headache and uh, where is the headache coming from as suffering? Maybe last night you had a bit too much tequila. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. I mean, I'm taking this example, but it could be anything, right? I mean, I'm trying to be funny with that, but it's to identify 
the root of suffering because suffering cannot exist by itself without uh, a previous condition. Then it's to say, well, if I don't want to have that suffering again, I have to stop creating the conditions that lead to that suffering. So that's the third noble truth. And the fourth noble truth is um, the path of liberation from suffering, which is basically following uh, the teaching of Buddha. And the path of liberation is very simple. You, you can draw a, a, a circle, and it's called the eightfold path. I think it's eightfold in English path of liberation. So basically, it's eight recommendation from Buddha, which are very, very simple, because again, was his first teaching, uh, and not necessarily to some people who were very knowledgeable in, in Buddhism. So the first thing to, to say to yourself is, I trust uh, the teaching of Buddha, and I will question every everything about the teaching, but if uh, it makes sense to me, I will trust the teaching and, and study. The second thing is to say to yourself, well, studying is not good enough. I have to practice having good thoughts during my journey, then having a good speech, therefore having good actions. Then it's having a job that is not, it's not in contradiction with the teaching of Buddha. You cannot be in a mafia and kill people and be a Buddhist. It doesn't work. Uh, and then it's to say, well, I'm going to do the right efforts every day to implement all of the above and become a better person. And then it's to say, well, I'm going to practice concentration to be able to, to achieve that goal because it requires a lot of concentration. And then it's to achieve wisdom and use that wisdom for good reasons. So this is um, the Four Noble Truths. Thank you very much for that. And I'd love to, maybe it's within the context of those truths and trying to follow those truths or not, I don't know. But in your process where you do offerings, reading, mantras, are the mantras in English or in another language or in French or otherwise? No, the mantras are in Sanskrit or, or in Tibetan sometimes. But for instance, the mantra of, empty, uh, of emptiness, I, I can tell you now, and, and I don't think you're going to understand much, and, and I'm not sure I understand fully the mantra, but it's Tadyata Om Gate Gate Paragate Parasamgate Bodhisoa. So I say that mantra many, many times. Uh, I have a manla, which is basically like a, a bracelet with pearls, little pearls, and you have 108 pearls, each of them representing uh, a teaching of, of Buddha. And you, you repeat that 108 times, uh, if you have the time to do it. If not, you do, you do it three times, and, and you try to uh, understand the mantra. Like, for instance, emptiness is it's a very, very important um, part of Buddhism um, that explains all phenomena of, of life. 
Um, and I can, I, I mean, we can go into details of it if you want, but it's going to take an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, given given the time constraints but, we have today, <laughs> but I can I can tell you. I mean, very quickly. Let's you know, yeah. like for instance, you can you can have a, a a page of paper on the front of you, and it is a page of paper. You do not deny the fact that it is a page of paper. Now, for you, it's a page of paper, but for someone else who doesn't who has never seen a page of paper, it could be something to like the fire uh, or it could be some other interpretation. So whatever you you think of is not necessarily the ultimate truth. It's just your interpretation. Also, that sheet of paper, that, that page that you have on the front of you is made of wood that uh, was once a seed in the ground that became a tree after years of rain and wind and, and, and sun and nights. That piece of paper, if you go further, uh, is made of um, particles, atoms and smaller particles. And ultimately, the piece of paper that you have on the front of you is, yes, a piece of paper, but it's much more than that. I think you and I have a, you and I have a lot to talk about, my friend. Uh, that's so. I, and I, thank I you. Cheat, uh, believe me, I mean, I'm I'm a student trying to explain to you what I understand. I, I am not. I'm definitely not considering myself a teacher. Well, well, speaking of teachers, just just to, and then I'm I'm going to keep zooming in and out. I'm going to come back to visualizing weakness because I'd love to get a, a, a real world example from you of of a weakness you were working on and, and what you did. But before we get there, just as perhaps a jumping off point for people who are curious about this, so there are a few books I, I grew up with a very strong aversion to religion of all types or anything I considered organized religion. And we don't have time to psychoanalyze that right now, but suffice to say that, that that is something I have carried for a very long time. So I had an, a visceral knee jerk resistance to anything that had almost anything that had an ism at the end of it, if that makes sense. Yes. And then there were a few books that were introduced to me that had a tremendous impact, uh, and maybe, maybe thinkers is, is another way to put it. So the, the first was from, and I don't know how I came across it, but it was a book written by Thich Nhat Hanh, who was nominated oh, yes. for the Nobel Peace Prize by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, exactly. And uh, it was either, it was one of the two, because I ended up reading both, but The Miracle of Mindfulness or Peace is Every Step. And I remember there was there was one example, not to make this about me, but it might be helpful to people out there. One example, and I don't know which book it was in, it was in one of the two, that really stuck with me for decades now, is he talked about how, and this is an example of how mindfulness can actually help you, right? At least in my mind, I was like, oh, wow, that actually makes perfect sense. And it was, if you're, if you're washing the dishes after a meal, and you're going to reward yourself with, I think it was a plum. And the whole time you're washing the dishes, you're thinking about the plum. You're thinking about the plum. When you eat the plum, you're not going to enjoy the plum because you'll be thinking about whatever's coming after the plum. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh my that's God, that's so simple, but it makes a lot of sense. So, of course. so Thich, Thich Nhat Hanh and then also 
Tara Brock wrote a book called Radical Acceptance. It's it's a very boring title, but it it is one of the things that perhaps more than anything else, uh, particularly after my first real television experience, which was very very difficult on everyone. It was the suicide mission of sorts. I mean the the schedule, everything was extremely extremely difficult, uh, and I. I lost my temper a few times at uh, not generally people in the field, but usually with editing team. And I was very uh, ashamed of that, very unproud of that. And this book really helped me to, I think, uh, radical acceptance, reconcile a lot of what was just gnawing at me on the inside or causing that to come out at really bad times. And I, I bring up those books because uh, when you and I have had some interaction electronically, and uh, I'm very excited to have you in, in the new book that's coming out, not, not too far out, Tribe of Mentors. So thank you for that. Sharon Salzberg and a bunch of really wonderful people are in there. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Dalai Lama's 100 Elephants on a Blade of Grass. Yes. And uh, you also had the, the French, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because it'll sound terrible when I try it. Uh, but was was that your, was that the book that, made the difference for you in terms of exploring these types of subjects or was there something that you found first and how did you find the book no it was this book for sure uh and i still have the book of course which is out of print because uh it's from 1989 um that book was sent to me by my mother um i was living in washington dc and I had previously book, uh, read a book in a plane coming to America to live per permanently in America, a book about T Tibet and about Buddhism. And I was interested, but I was a bit confused. But it was something was interesting about it. How did you find that first book? So I was uh, at the airport. and This was in France. I was, uh, yes, I, I was about to go in, into the into the plane and I had 10 francs, which is the equivalent of two dollars or a bit less. And um, I mean, francs do not exist anymore now, it's euros, but at the time it was about that, that much. And I was tempted to buy Playboy magazine. <laughs> <laughs> it's natural, healthy young man. And I actually went and grabbed the Playboy and then I saw that <laughs> book about Tibet that was... <laughs> That was um, somewhere in the in in the airport, and and I look at it, and it was the same price, and I say, oh my god, I'm interested because I always was curious about Tibet. It looks like it's it's we don't know much about that country and so on. So I say, oh, I'm going to buy the Tibet the Tibetan book, and then I got the, I had the book, and then I, I went back to the Playboy and I dropped the book, and then I was paying for the Playboy, and I. That at the last second, I said to the lady, "No, please, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm taking the book, and I put back the Playboy in uh, uh, where where it belonged." And that was my first um, interest uh, in Buddhism and and in Tibetan culture. <laughs> but, it's hard. To, it's hard to make proper use of a Playboy on an airplane. So, <laughs> I think well, the interviews are always very good. <laughs> So I interrupted though. So you read that book and then your mother sent you. Yes. I said to her, I said, look, can you try to find me something interesting about Buddhism and Tibet? And maybe it's, it's someone, a master or 
I didn't know the Dalai Lama at the time. I, I had no idea. And she found that book and sent it to me. And in the, intro, the, the beginning of the book is the speech that he made when he got the, Nobel, the Peace Nobel Prize. And that speech really moved me tremendously. Uh, it was a brilliant, brilliant, uh, compassionate uh, speech that he made. And after that, I read, of course, the rest of the book, which touched different aspects of, of Buddhism. But ultimately, I understood that Buddhism can be three things at the same time. And it's why it's so, it's so appealing today to a lot of people, because Buddhism can be a religion, if you wish. We, it can be also purely a philosophy. And it can be also, all the, all the theory of Buddhism can be proven by science, especially quantum physics or quantum mechanics. So you have three ways to embrace the philosophy of Buddhism. One being totally secular, and I think it's actually probably the future of Buddhism is to be proven by science, uh, and, and quantum mechanics is, is the best way to prove the, the theory, or philosophically by, by debating and by um, analyzing, you can prove the, the theory of, the, the many theories of Buddhism. And then, of course, you can always follow the religious path, path uh, which it's not in, in it's not fighting the, the fact that it's a, it's a science and it's a, a philosophy as well. It's just complementary. And some people um, are purely religious. Some people are purely scientific about it. And some people are, are, doing, uh, are using the, the three aspects of, the, of that uh, philosophy. One thing that also brought me back into the orbit of... Buddhism, and I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist uh, in the same way that people are like, oh, are you a surfer? I'm like, no, no, no. I, I surf very, very poorly, but I would never call myself a surfer, right? I wouldn't self-identify that way. Like, I'm very interested in reading different books on, say, Buddhism, uh, mo mostly in the secular capacity. And in part because uh, a branch of philosophy called Stoicism, I can effectively say save my life and uh on at least one occasion probably more one of the quotes i have on my refrigerator is from marcus aurelius so the stoic thinkers particularly epictetus uh seneca and marcus aurelius uh, the most famous book by the last being meditations have a lot of overlap with secular buddhism they're very they're almost entirely compatible. I can't think of one thing that comes to mind that is contradictory. And so the sort of the Greeks and the Romans brought me back to Buddhism to expand my thinking about how to become more self-aware and less emotionally reactive. And there, there's there's very well, I shouldn't say very little, but if we're looking at secular stoicism, because you can get into cosmology and some really weird stuff, uh, then the, uh, there there isn't a there isn't a ton to work with in terms of original texts, and uh, 
Buddhism has a lot has a lot more to work with in terms of um, original writings over many many centuries and different cultures also, which is interesting to me so to, to look at the different breeds, so to speak. But uh, what I've noticed in Silicon Valley is that both Stoicism and Buddhism here, I'm sitting in San Francisco, have become more popular because I think in part you can take engineers who may be by default more secular and give them a toolkit to help with navigating life. And I was having a conversation with a gentleman named Jerry Colonna, uh, who uh, was in a former life, a very, very successful technology investor, among other things, and now works with uh, executives at a lot of the technology companies that people would recognize. And one of the questions that he likes to ask, which is a perfectly, you don't have to be a Buddhist to ask this type of question, but it happens to relate is, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but how are you complicit in creating the conditions you say you don't want, right? So how are you Ooh. contributing to creating the conditions that you say you don't want, which seems to come right back to the noble truths and so on that you were talking about. But the, the weakness of visualizing weakness is very interesting to me. So I want to make sure I I come back to that briefly. We can bounce around certainly, but when you're going through your meditation and you're visualizing weakness, can you give us an example of a weakness past or current that you've visualized and what that process looks like in your mind? Hmm. Yes. Uh, Before I go to that, I'd like to, to say one thing that is, uh, very interesting to me about Buddhism is that it's not a not dogmatic uh, religion or philosophy at all. And actually, even Buddha himself, Buddha means basically the enlightened one, right? Uh, but but his name was Shakyamuni. Shakyamuni himself said, please, 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 please. It's not because I am respected and I am supposedly enlightened that you should take every word I say for truthful. Please analyze everything I say and reject everything that doesn't make sense in my in my speech, in my actions, in my theories. Do not take the dogma as it is. Question everything. And, and uh, today when you study Buddhism, your teachers, they, they very, very articulate in making sure that you do that and they test you making sure that you do not, do, not, do not accept anything they say because they are supposedly your teacher or supposedly um, uh, pure or anything like that. So that's very interesting to me, that you have to reject whatever doesn't make sense to yourself. Now, going back to the weakness, weakness are, are coming from ignorance, and ignorance is basically the root of all weaknesses. And it's, it we basically consider in Buddhism three poison of, of the mind, which are coming from ignorance. One of the, the, the first one is um, attachment and unhealthy, unhealthy desire. And then anger. Is a, anger is very powerful poison of the mind as well, and that comes from ignorance. So let's say attachment. Let's take the, the, the subject of attachment. So I could be attached 
to many things. And I am during the day, actually. I mean, look, uh, the man who's talking to you right now is Eric Repair. He's a simple man who's trying to be a good guy and who fell many times uh, in his vision. I'm not talking to, to you as a master here. Uh, I'm, I'm a student. I'm, I'm trying every day to to um, fight uh, anger, to fight attachment and, and ignorance. So therefore, uh, saying that, uh, if I take attachment uh, as a subject, I'm trying to see where I am attached the most. Is it the power? Is it the glory? Is it the money? Is it something else? And then I decide that today I'm going to focus on the fact that I'm attached to my reputation as a great chef. And I'm very, potentially, that can bring to a very insecure uh, reaction toward that. And I can be very attached, so, so much attached to my reputation of a four-star chef and a, a three-star chef Michelin or international chef, whatever it is. And that it's definitely uh, something that is negative. So when I identify the subject that I want to fight, um, I basically concentrate and say, why are you so attached to be someone of a potential, like being a celebrity, for instance? Why, what does it do? What is it, what does it do for you? What is, how good is it for you? What, what happens if you lose that? What, what will be the consequence of, of losing that? And, and how important is it in your life compared to being healthy and, and being a compassionate person and, and so on? And, and when you analyze the subject, you realize that suddenly, if you attach to uh, your title, which actually, when you actually die, stays here, and you die and your title is doesn't exist anymore so it's not even meaningful on, on the long term uh, when i identify that that weakness which is attachment in, in this instance uh i say okay well i'm gonna visualize because i have i want to make it simple for my mind to fight uh i'm gonna visualize that as something and for me it, uh, I mean, for you, it could be something else, but it could be a rock, a stone, uh, it could be anything. For me, I always go to the dark cloud because for some reason it works in my mind. I see a dark cloud and I'm like, this dark cloud is my attachment to my title and to what I'm supposed to represent. And I am going to get rid of it. And I have decided that probably because I read a lot of, uh, uh, how you call, uh, books from Star Wars, I mean, watch Star Wars and, 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 and read a lot of comic books and so on. So I, 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 I am the, the guy who has the laser on the front of, <laughs> in his forehead. And I have that power of destroying that cloud and saying, well, that cloud is full of attachment to to something that is not meaningful at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's, it, it's not 
it's not important and i'm destroying and i'm destroying and destroying and destroying and doing that repetitively uh create basically like i said before like the pavlov reflex soon as i'm gonna uh, have doubt about losing what i have built in terms of reputation i'm gonna think about is it really important in my life? Can I can I give it away? And and I realize that it is not important in my, in my life, and I can give it away easily. And then suddenly, boom! The cloud is. I visualize the cloud and I destroy it, and I don't have I I don't have that fear anymore of of losing of being attached. Um, that's that's my way of doing it. I'm I'm not sure. Um, it's the perfect way. I'm not sure it works for everybody, but for me, it's the way I do it. And it's very simple when you think about it. So simplicity, in and maybe simplicity isn't the right word, maybe elegance is the right word in terms of few moving pieces, but very, very high quality pieces is actually what I think of when I hear your name. And uh, you know, I'm sure that as with any high-end operation, speaking of your uh, restaurant, restaurants, that you know maybe it's like the duck on the surface where it's extremely calm, and then you don't see the the feet kicking like hell underneath. I don't know, but the <laughs> uh, the the question I wanted to ask you is uh, related to attachment. So many people in the culinary world are attached to, and this is true everywhere, but money and growth, and particularly with the profile that you have, you must get approached to do huge chains and dozens of this and hundreds of that. You you must be sent opportunities like that all the time. I mean, I would imagine it has to happen every week. Uh, how have you thought about making decisions about sort of quality versus scale? Yes. Well, I am not naive. I mean, I'm, I am not that naive. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand the benefits of um, being wealthy that comes usually from working hard and developing businesses and so on. Uh, or, or sometimes it comes from, from some other directions. But wealth definitely contribute to happiness but ultimately we know it doesn't bring happiness uh, and inner strength inner happiness so you have to i mean in my case i decided that i had to find my level of contentment and what was my level of contentment so i i created it and i said look my level of contentment is that I have a very successful restaurant in New York that makes me very happy, that creates jobs for 160 families. And um, we work as a team to make our clients happy, to create experiences for people who come here. And uh, we live from that. And now I live pretty well. And I'm trying to give uh, 
a good lifestyle and good income to everyone who is in the company, of course, in, in relative to their position and, and to the responsibility that they have. I mean, it's not everybody has the same compensations, but I think like that. And then I look at my life and I'm like, you know, I'm very lucky in this life. First of all, so far, I think I am healthy. Um, I'm not starving. Um, not in a war. I have a happy family surrounding me, supporting me. I have a team that seems to like me. Um, <laughs> and, and in terms of money, I, I eat well. Uh, I, I'm traveling when I need to travel. I have uh, the pair of sneakers that I like. Uh, I have a pair of jeans, I have a t-shirt, I have what it's called, I have uh, sweaters and so on. How many of that do I need? How many houses do I need? How much money do I need in a bank? And when I'm going to leave this world, everything is going to stay here. I'm not taking anything with me. So how much sacrifices I have to make to accumulate wealth, that are worth worth it or not. And I realized that for myself, Le Bernardin, and we have another restaurant in Cayman Island with the Ritz-Carlton called Blue by Eric Repair, and I'm consulting there, but it's it's very low maintenance for me. It's, it's mostly the, the team, the teams, both teams that work together uh, with my mentorship. But I, I said to myself, look, If you open another restaurant in Vegas and one in Dubai and one in Hong Kong, Singapore, whatever, and accept accept all those those, uh, offers, suddenly your lifestyle is going to change. Um, You're not going to have time for yourself, which I need, uh, uh, as you can understand in the previous discussion we had, you realize that I need a lot of time for myself. Um, And I believe that time is for myself as positive consequences on my family. I'm a better family member and the family support me and support my business and the business support my family. So I kind of have have that balance that I really don't want to change. I'm content and I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose that. Uh, and it's not about being attached to that. It's not an. It's not an unhealthy attachment. It's just that it's very beneficial for myself first, of course, but for everyone around me. And it's why it's why um, I am where I am, and I'm doing what I'm doing. I mean, you you sound content, and not that I have a perfect radar for that. But I mean, well, you, some some you, mornings I'm a bit more grumpy than <laughs> before the coffee. But <laughs> and I have challenges during the day. I mean, it's not like uh, my days are blissful all uh, every day of the week. I have some challenges that I have to resolve, and I have some moments of stress and so on. I mean, it's not like you know nirvana here it's it's i mean it's new york (laughs) (laughs) that is a great quote uh uh, 
I, I want to, if you'd be comfortable, because I think it would be very encouraging for a lot of people listening. If, if you're willing to look back at your childhood, uh, it seems like certainly at points it was very difficult uh, for you. Yes. Could you tell us about some of those early days? Maybe mm-hmm. just, just describe for us some of um, yes. what your childhood was like and some of the most sort of important events in your childhood. So I was born uh, in a family that was pretty successful. My mother was in the fashion industry. She was a, she's still a beautiful woman. My father was in banking, perfect young couple, uh, a success story. They were living in the French Riviera. They were actually at living uh, when I was four or five years old in Saint-Tropez. So it was, you know, uh, with the jet set and so on. And then they divorced and my life changed with the divorce. Uh, until then I was, and when they divorced, I was about six years old or five, five, six years old. Until then I had a great life. Everything was fine. And then when they divorced, uh, my mother, um, remarried my father remarried uh his his wife didn't necessarily like my presence um my stepfather uh was very very mean to me uh at least is the way i i felt and uh it was hell at home for me as a young kid uh, I was sent when I was eight years old to uh, boarding school um, where it became hellish when a priest tried to uh, sexually abuse me. Uh, many challenges like that in my life. Then uh, I came back home, of course, and uh, I had to deal with my stepfather for a long time. It was a very challenging um, the relationship that we had, he was uh, verbally abusive and physically would have no problem to beat me and, and, and so on, in, 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 of course, making sure that my mother wouldn't know. Uh, my mother was struggling to, um, to raise me, and uh, at 15, being a very bad student and having a lot of anger issues and a lot of other issues linked to that lifestyle, I was at 15 years old in the principal office at the end of the year, ninth nine grade, discussing my future. And my future was he cannot go to a regular school. He's, Eric has to find a job. And I was actually very happy about that because I didn't like the, 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 the school system. And I asked if I could go to culinary school and learn the craftsmanship of becoming a chef. It was not easy. Uh, culinary schools are, are very uh, difficult and they require a lot of discipline and it's, it's, uh, it's tough for young kids like when they are 15 years old, 16 years old, 17. At 17, actually, I moved to Paris and I lived in a tiny, tiny, tiny apartment and worked in La Tour d'Argent, which was very famous at the time and, and struggled with uh, ridiculous salaries and, and the challenges of the kitchen and so on. And those years were, were 
not happy years for myself. Moving on, I mean, I, I worked for Joel Robuchon in his kitchen. They were tough kitchens, a, l- a lot of work, uh, not too many rewards that you will see at the end of the day. And um, when I was, I think, well, I did my military duties because they were mandatory and it's not really uh, a pleasant experience. It's not meant to be a pleasant experience. Uh, then I moved to the U.S. in 1989 without speaking a, a word of English. So huge challenges uh, coming to America and and discovering that nobody's waiting for you at the airport with a red carpet and say, oh my God, you're French, you know, to cook, you're a genius. Um, (laughs) So all those... Especially in New York City. (laughs) Yeah, so all those aspects were very, very challenging and didn't make me a happy camper. And I was was missing something in my life. I was missing uh, spirituality and... And what Buddhism came for me today, but um, yes, I was I was a little bit lost and angry, and angry means unhappy. That was really the the, the beginning of my life. Of course, I had some good moments and and some good friends and good relationships and 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 so on. But I, when I look at the big picture, they were the dark dark years. When did you, during that entire period, uh, was there a particular moment or day or dish or anything where you realized, huh, I think I could actually be really good at this, meaning cooking? Was there any assignment, teacher, anything that gave you the confidence? It's interesting because I started in 1991 at Le Bernardin as the chef. And in 94, I was the executive chef of Le Bernardin and, uh, and the business partner of Maggie Lecoz who created it with her brother, Le Bernardin, 1991. 1994, the brother passed away and I, I was uh, in charge of the kitchen um, by myself. I mean, by myself with the team, of course, to manage the team. And in, ni- in 95, Ruth Rachel at the New York Times gave, um, gave the team and, and to myself, ultimately, uh, a four-star review. And from there, we had only accolades uh, and rewards and, and so on. But I never thought I was a good cook, neither a good chef. And it took me until the year 2000, when I did a book called A Return to Cooking, that I realized that I was insulting my luck because I was talented, and not everybody's talented, and I had to acknowledge it without being pretentious, not to insult my luck. Um, it was a discovery for me. So a return to cooking uh, was an adventure. I wanted to study the four seasons, a little bit like Vivaldi with the music, but myself with the food. And I decided to bring a painter, two photographers, and a writer and to go to different regions of America during different seasons. And therefore, we uh, rented houses in uh, Vermont for the fall, in Hamptons for the summer, in the spring in California. And because the winter was too challenging uh, in, in North America, we decided to go to Puerto Rico. And 
during that experience that was starting every morning with for the painter a black canvas and for myself uh, going to the market and, and finding ingredients and cooking for the group and documenting the recipes and so on it's when i realized that i was a good cook 2000 in 2000 2000 it's amazing it, it took me such a long time and and then as I, after that i have been um making sure that it doesn't go to my head and that I stay humble and that I share the knowledge and the cooking wisdom accumulated. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's what it is. But ultimately, since that process, I accept the gift that I received uh, in my life, which is being able to be a good cook and to be uh, a chef, ultimately. You have you have also your memoir, which is Thirty Two Yokes. Yes, subtitled from my mother's table to working the line, and I wanted to ask you because it, it's it seems like you have a very special relationship with your mother. If you're cooking dinner for your mother, are there any particular meals that you like to make for her, or that she likes you to make for her? I think she likes to cook for me. Ah, yeah, that's that's I that I should have seen that coming. Yes, no, that's that makes sense. It's very interesting because when I was a kid, uh, and she knew I was unhappy and I was challenged, her way to make me um, happy and to to show her love to her son was through the process of feeding me, through the process of cooking for me, is where she put all of of her energy as a mother and I, I, I will feel it. Uh, I will know it was meant to be um, a proof of love for our child. And uh, if today I am with my mother, I am sure that she will not, not let me take the knife and, and start to slice vegetables or anything. She will take total control of the kitchen, claiming that I will mess up the kitchen and she would have to clean it after. Uh, so that will be her excuse. But I think the, re the real reason will be to uh, make her son um, feeling the love from his mom. I have many uh, dishes that I love from her. Uh, she was doing, um, and she still does, a Vietnamese spring roll called Nem, which I loved. And actually, I, I have never been able to make it as good as hers. And she will make also for me steak au poivre with green peppercorn sauce. That was for me like the ultimate. And then every day she will make an apple tart. Uh, that was like, what, 12 inches apple tart that I will eat every afternoon uh, when I was coming back from school. And that was, that was my favorite meal. Oh man, I'm so hungry. I've been uh, yeah. been fa I've been fasting. I'm so hungry. I'm like salivating like my dog when I'm opening a can of food. Uh, is it true? This is just, I guess, in the in the questions related to food category. Is it true that you eat Swiss cheese before you taste dishes? Or yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Can, can you explain this, please? Yes, of course. Not only I eat. Swiss cheese, I make the entire team of sous chefs, and there are eight sous chefs in, in Le Bernardin. I make them eat Swiss cheese that is not 
uh, artisanal, is, is an industrial uh, cheese because it always has the same flavor. It's, it's very consistent. It's not the best Swiss cheese. It, does, it doesn't have the, uh, the qualities of an artisanal cheese, but we know that it tastes a certain way. And then we, when we come to the kitchen, we caliber our palate by testing it. So when I say caliber our palate, what I mean is that if I test the cheese today and it tastes too salty, I know my palate is very sensitive to salt. Ah. The cheese tastes very bland. My palate is numb. If the cheese tastes very well balanced, I know my palate is very accurate. And we, we do that with all the sous chefs. We are going to go to all the mise en place, which is the preparation from different stations. And when we go test the sauce and, and any preparation, if we find everything salty, we know it's because our palate is off, uh, because of the cheese gave us the information that we, we are ultra sensitive to salt. Or if everything seems to be bland, uh, I know my palate is, is uh, numb. And that can come from many things. I mean, if you drink a bit too much at night, your palate will be numb. Uh, if you um, if you uh, have a good diet and 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 uh, don't eat too many sweets at night, and you depending of your lifestyle and, and what you eat, your palate will, will react the day after. And and the cheese is the way for us to to know that. I love that. Uh, <laughs> all right. So a few since that one mind some some gold i'm going to keep going with some food related questions uh if if you could ask home cooks just assume most people are listening or of course home cooks one ingredient they should use less and one ingredient you wish they would experiment with more i am in favor of organic and I'm, we're going to take two examples right we're going to take animals and and we're going to take vegetables so if you have the choice of feeding your family an animal like a chicken, for instance, or eggs, or even milk that doesn't have growing hormones, doesn't have pesticides, doesn't have antibiotics, and so on, if you have that choice, would you give your child a meat or eggs or, or, or milk with those chemicals in it, or would you give your child, and if you can afford it, obviously, because very often it's a matter of budget, but would you give your child a product that is purely natural and doesn't have those chemicals? For the vegetables, it's very much the same. I'm not anti-GMO vegetables necessarily, but when GMO carried the, um, carried the, the it's not the genes, but the DNA of Roundup, for instance. And when the vegetables have a lot of pesticides and, and so on, and when you have choice and you can give to your family vegetables or fruits who don't have that, what would you give to your family? Um, so I, I think my answer is not exactly what you expect because you would like to, 
maybe one single ingredient, but I'm a bit broader in my vision. And I think it's still important to not necessarily answer what you wanted. <laughs> oh, sure. No, no, no. That's, that's, you have full creative liberty here. <laughs> but um, if we go to an ingredient, I would say if you have choice in between real butter and fake butter, right, that is uh, made of chemicals and so on, processed food basically is processed food. If you have the choice, use the regular butter, for instance, which has, we know, it has fat, it has uh, benefits, and it has uh, ingredients in, in, in its body that are not necessarily positive for the human body, but do not use processed food. The body our body doesn't digest processed food easily or doesn't digest it at all. So I'm saying use natural products. Good recommendation. I, uh, yeah, the budget, I really wish that there were more of a level playing field. I'm optimistic about uh, Amazon having bought Whole Foods. I'm very, yes. very interested to see how that may open the door to... Uh, since the first one of the first announcements they made was going to be lowering prices, since in effect Amazon's creating an internal customer for developing their own infrastructure, potentially to then supply food on a much broader scale, so they can afford to have lower prices. I'm very very excited to see how that impacts. Yeah, me too. The options that people have. Uh, do you have a favorite cocktail? Dirty martini. With Dirty what? martini. With vodka, stir, top. <laughs> <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> uh, well, Eric, this this is really fun. We could talk for hours and hours and hours. I want to be respectful of your time, and uh, hopefully, we'll get to meet in person at some point. Certainly, I'm in New York often enough that I would I would really enjoy oh, that. Come visit us, of course. It will be a pleasure. Is there anything uh, before we we wrap up that you would and like people listening to consider or try or ask themselves or do? Do you have any ask of the audience? Not really. I, I mean, I hope that our conversation today will make everyone think a little bit about his lifestyle and about his definition of happiness and about his impact in the world and. Uh, if we have done that, which is very ambitious, um, I'm very happy. Uh, and if we haven't done it, it it's quite fine. Uh, and But I hope that uh, our conversation is, first of all, inspirational for ourselves and, and for others. I think so. I think, I think that if people listening enjoyed this half as much as I did, then I think... <laughs> I think we're I think we're gold, and people can certainly find you online to say hello or thank you or to ask a question on Instagram, Twitter at Eric Repair. That's uh, E R I C R I P E R T. And I apologize for my terrible, terrible French pronunciation, but I'm going to say it like a Yankee. And 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 then Facebook, Chef Eric Repair, 
and the website, this is where my pronunciation is going to kill me, uh, Le Bernardin, which is the le-bernardin.com. And Eric, it's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. I had a lot of fun, great pleasure, and I'm honored to, to be talking to you and, uh, and your um, audience. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity, and hopefully I'll see you in New York very soon. Oh, yes. Now, that's a deal. And to everybody listening, we mentioned a lot of books. We mentioned uh, a lot of different resources, different types of meditation, and so on. You'll be able to find links to everything we've talked about in the show notes, as always, at tim.blog forward slash podcast for this episode and every other episode. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, founded by the genius Finns who lit the internet on fire. And you may have heard of their mushroom coffee, which features chaga and lion's mane, which has taken Silicon Valley by storm. I use it pretty much every day, either that or the chaga, which is decaf, a separate version. And I use both of these primarily for focus and productivity. They just get you going, light you up like a Christmas tree. So you should definitely check it out. People are always asking me what I use for cognitive enhancement. And for right now, this is the answer. I try to force this on all of my house guests. It is a hell of a thing. If I have employees or people come over who are working on projects with me, I always try to feed it to them because I'm going to get the limitless effect and <laughs> get a lot more out of them. The first time I mentioned this product and Four Sigmatic on the podcast, their products sold out in less than a week. So you may want to check them out soon if you're listening to this. And the coffee tastes like coffee. It uh, takes just seconds to prepare with hot water. And oddly enough, only includes 40 milligrams of caffeine. So it has less than half of what you'd get in a regular cup of coffee. I don't get any jitters, acid reflux, or any stomach burn, any of that. It's very unusual and very, very cool. So if you don't like caffeine, they also offer very strong but caffeine-free mushroom elixirs, which I will sometimes have in the evening. I find chaga specifically to be very, very grounding and earthy. So that is another option. And I have a cupboard full of their products uh, at the moment, which is right around the corner of my kitchen. You can try something. You can try a sample pack, which is great also. Right now, by going to 4 
youtube.com forward slash Tim. That's four sigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash Tim. And use the code Tim, T-I-M, to get 20% off of your first order. And they're not that expensive anyway. If you are in the experimental mindset, I do not think you'll be disappointed. So try them out. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time, if you could only use one supplement, what would it be? And my answer is inevitably Athletic Greens. It is your all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it in the 4-Hour Body, did not get paid for that, and I travel with it to avoid getting sick. I take it in the mornings to ensure optimal performance. It just covers all my bases if I can't get what I need through whole food meals throughout the rest of the day. As listeners of The Tim Ferriss Show, you can receive 30% off of your first order by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim. That is a great deal on one of my favorite products, and it covers my bases each day. It is part of my routine, and it leaves me with less to worry about if, for instance, I have to skip a meal or just can't get a high-quality meal. So check it out. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim and learn all about it. 